0: the people we're speaking to are a lot of the time either previous business owners or current business owners and the thing almost all of them say is like man where were you guys five years ago or 10 years ago when i was starting my company because this is exactly what i needed you know so i, I think from our perspective it makes us feel like we're on to something right if you've got an experienced business person who's now looking to be an investor and they can see the connection you know kind of tells us that we're satisfying a need in the market
1: From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie, and on today's show, we have Jeff Batten, the founder of Homestake Ventures, talking to us about the role that they play for entrepreneurs looking for growth capital that aren't quite looking for bank lending and also aren't looking for venture capital.
0: Homestake Venture Partners is a company that got started a few years ago between myself and my business partner, Bill Stoddart, and now it's grown into uh, a couple more people on our team, Wes Schifrin and Sarah Fitzgerald that some might know. We have essentially set out to bring additional growth capital opportunities to initially the, the Montana market, but we are working to expand that footprint right now. And and what we've been doing is, is really working with companies that don't have easy access to other forms of capital, whether that comes in the form of bank financing or on the other end of the spectrum in the form of, of maybe venture capital or angel investment capital. What we really focus on is working with what we call normal companies, people that still need growth capital for some reason, they've got some great opportunity that they want to get after, but that just sort of don't fill out the checklists that those other investors typically have.
1: Okay. I have so many questions right now. So prepare yourself. I think this is really interesting. So when when we think about normal companies that don't fit other investors, you are referring to maybe even bank lending, like debt and also venture. Is that right?
0: Yeah. I mean, we kind of fit in between those two sources of capital. And if you looked at that on a, if you really plotted that out, maybe on a chart or something, what you're going to find is there's a huge white space between where bank lending leaves off and the very few and highly filtered opportunities that venture capital and angel groups are even going to bother to look at. And so in between there in in our state there are thousands of companies, you know, that that are really well run and know what they're doing, know what their markets are. And those tend to be the kinds of companies that that we seek out. Our common denominator is are you well run by smart people? It's not the common denominator of do you have collateral, which is what the banks going to ask or do you have some billion dollar market opportunity and a, and a wish to sell your company in the next three years that really is kind of the checklist on the on the higher risk venture capital side of things.
1: Sure. and so I'm, I'm thinking about these like I guess I call them small businesses. they' they're businesses like small businesses deceiving. that's like under 50 million a year in revenue. and you're fitting in in growth capital. So you're not starting businesses, but funding that growth opportunity.
0: In general, yes. I will say our history is that we have done worked with a few really early stage companies that at least had revenues and had kind of proven that their product had a fit in the market, but definitely early, pretty early stage. But but yes, in general, we are looking for companies that have a growth opportunity that the financing is hard to come by for whatever reason and really probably have have taken a lot of risk out of their companies already by being in business for several years or by you know already growing into lots of different customers or customer segments and that that is the lion's share of what's in our current portfolio
1: interesting how many companies are in your portfolio
0: right now we've we've finished up 11 investments over the last few years and they and this is probably the interesting part and maybe I'll help clarify what I mean by normal businesses. You know, it really spans, our current portfolio spans everything from a organic farm in the Gallatin Valley that's been in business for over 10 years on one end of the spectrum, all the way up to software companies that have gotten a start, but are really kind of looking for that next leg of growth to a company that helps people with eating disorders. You know, so it really is a wide lens that we can look through because we're not just looking for kind of those earlier things I said. We're not just looking for collateral. We're not just looking for billion-dollar exits. You know, the, the companies that we can choose to work with is a is a really broad swath of our community.
1: So, Jeff, tell me, how did you get into this? Like, where did this come from?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it it's from... Probably two different things you know, like like any good entrepreneurial endeavor it it definitely started with a lot of whiteboard time. but you know kind of the why of it is really in a lot of ways sort of the culmination of my career uh, of helping a lot of different companies, mostly in the bozeman area but but really you know kind of in the northwest, to figure out growth capital challenges, and you know through that probably had i don't know a hundred different investment opportunities, whether I've been investing in or helping pull investment into a company, you know, lots of different ways, lots of different structures, lots of different everythings that had to be used to really get the growth capital into these businesses because we're not in this thriving ecosystem of lots of capital all over the place. So I'd say that that led me to, you know, A, kind of think differently about how you can structure deals and, and how you can attract investors with a logical story of how they will see their return but it also kind of introduced me to some of what I would say are the downsides of venture capital and kind of angel type capital which is this mentality of of almost feeling like you're being stampeded toward the exit of your business and and to me like I would rather be involved with businesses that are kind of painstakingly growing themselves in a very quality way really paying attention to their fundamentals, not trying to think about how they can spin this thing up and sell it in three years, but instead just building a great business and knowing that over the long run, building a great business is going to be rewarding you know, financially. And I think what I find ha- or have found is that that's mostly the kinds of entrepreneurs and the kinds of businesses that I run into day in, day out. There's not that many people that are really looking to have that experience of, you know, sleeping under your desk like they do in Silicon Valley and, and you know, really trying to blitz the world with with an idea that may or may not quite fit. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so for us, I would say we really try to avoid a lot of that dysfunction and that rush and that, you know, type of decision making that can get injected into a company when that kind of capital is brought in. The other half of it, so I said earlier, there's kind of two things. The other half of it is, is is my business partner Bill, who's an investment manager and had over the years lots and lots of his clients coming to him and saying i'd really like to invest locally. Can you help me do that And his answer you know paraphrased is well we could have we could do muni bonds or we could do some real estate, which one would you like to pursue and you know, they're, they invariably their answer was like, no, that's not what I was talking about. What I was talking about is all these businesses that I see starting all over the place that sure seem like they're promising. And so that's where that whiteboard came in. You know, we spent good amount of time trying to figure out how do you marry up, you know, that kind of market demand from the investor side who, who truly want to invest in their communities and help recirculate the wealth inside of these communities, instead of having it extracted, you know, there's investors coming at it from that perspective, but then how do you marry it up with companies that don't really want to sell themselves necessarily, that that's not what they're in it for. So, you know, we spent some good time on a whiteboard, like any good startup and kind of found some ways that we wanted to implement. And, you know, I'd say now that we're years into it, we're starting to see that the returns that we, at that point in time, were sort of theorizing about are, are coming true. You know, that good companies do have the ability to sort of Use different ways to make an investor have a rate of return instead of just putting themselves on the chopping block.
1: Okay, interesting. And so I want to talk about your investors. One, I'm assuming you have investors how has that worked in the the past and how is that working now and what would an investor expect on a return in something like this
0: sure so our investor group has been entirely montana residents up until today and and that is partly to well mostly to reflect our goal of making sure that we're matching local companies with local dollars because we could theorize it or talk about this for a long time about kind of what modern capital markets have done to local economies. And, and I think we definitely have a philosophical kind of ax to grind to say that there are other ways of doing this. We used to have a method for doing this 50 years ago when community banks were thriving and doing really well and, and, you know, competing for business in all of these small markets all over the, not just in our region, but all over the country and we've lost that as a as a country and we've we've gone toward this consolidate 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 method and so you know our thinking is to reverse some of that by coming at it from a different approach and luckily we've got a, a community of montana investors who see what what that means the wisdom of it why that's something that we ought to be striving to create and so so who we have now is People who care about the Montana commu- business community, they're individuals. We have not gone into any amount of kind of institutional capital at this point in time. But I will say that, that you know, some of that is in an evolutionary time period right now. You know, in some ways, like the 11 deals that we've done to date, and we're, we're working on a 12th one right now, in a lot of ways, those were kind of beta testing of the different approaches that we use where where we're helping company founders maintain control of their company, but also making sure that that creates a great rate of return for people. And, you know, I think at this point, we can see in the rear view that it's working. And and so we're, we're working to morph ourselves into kind of a version two of ourselves. And instead of only seeking Montana investors, we're now looking to widen that scope a little bit. But, you know, I think not too wide. You know, I think when it all is said and done, most of our investment in this next fund that we're raising would be from Montana, from Idaho, Wyoming, maybe parts of Washington, because we really kind of want to be an Intermountain West footprint. And instead of, you know, only focusing on financial centers. So, you know, could we go to San Francisco and New York and, and raise all the money that we needed? Probably pretty quickly, because what we're doing is pretty unique and, and offers people a chance to diversify into something that they probably don't already have in their portfolio but that's not what we're trying to do. You know, what we're trying to do is create this virtuous circle of of having local investment dollars flow into invest local companies and then when those are successful, you know, that wealth just stays in our communities. So, from a rate of return perspective, I, you know, it's all over the place to be com- completely honest. The the 12 deals, if we do this last one knock on wood, they span everything from debt opportunities where collateral actually was available and, and the right thing to use. And those are relatively, you know, lower lower rate deals. Those are typically in the, well, the ones we have are between six and 10%, depending on the deal we did. On the other end of the spectrum, we do have opportunities to invest in, you know, kind of exit-based classic equity investments because we are players in this local marketplace. So So some of those, you know, could have really big exit potential. We'll see. and then But in the middle is, is something that we do that's pretty unique. And that is, it's probably why we're calling our new fund effort a founder's fund, is we, we think it's founder-friendly to, to give a, a company an opportunity to be able to buy its investors out through company success. And so what we do is we have some pretty unique structures using Essentially, growing revenue in the company to buy us back out of our equity investment. And so, a founder might work with us because they realize that they only need X amount of dollars to do the project that's right in front of them to create the growth that they need. And, you know, in a few years' time, with that revenue growing into place, they'll be able to pay our investment group a, a fair rate of return and then be back owning their company again and, you know, not feeling like they owe anybody anything. And I will say, you know, investors are finding this attractive, but so are founders. So are company, you know, people that are running these companies see this as a pretty legitimate alternative to, to really kind of going and telling a story to a venture capitalist and an angel group that includes some kind of crazy hockey stick of growth at the end and, and hoping that that, you know, gels and, and turns into an investment. From our perspective, Mm. hockey sticks are a little bit scary. Like we don't need them to achieve what we want to do.
1: Sure. That totally makes sense. I'm a small business owner with no investors. And so the idea of having investors and VC is is definitely scary and glad that you exist out there. What's interesting about this to you? Like I'm curious kind of what your day-to-day looks like as a result and what that journey looks like from your seat.
0: Yeah, I mean there's probably two sides to that. One is that how much has come to our realization as we've dug into the problem over the last few years. So there's, you know, I kind of got into it a little bit earlier, but you know, the the modern version of capitalism in the United States has led to some dead ends, I would say, for for opportunities in companies and in communities that could have been a really big deal if they'd been able to access some capital. And, and you know, to me, like this idea of here's seed funding for $15 million seems mostly crazy to me because I've, I've seen how that money gets spent. And a lot of the times it's spent very quickly because we need to create some buzz in the market or we need to, we need to create a milestone that somebody can try to hang a hat on. But let's not worry about revenue right now. And, you know, so to me, like we've created this situation where it's almost an all or nothing kind of an investment thing. Like you either have zero risk and you can go to the bank and you can talk about pledging the collateral of the land or the house or the whatever that you own and essentially remove all risk from the situation so that the bank will loan you money at whatever, four or five, six percent. On the other end of the spectrum you better have something that's going to be the next Google or basically we don't want to talk to you. And so, you know, to me, why has that happened? I think macroeconomic forces have caused community banks to get swallowed up by bigger banks because of regulatory changes, because of shareholder need for for those exits from those banks that they previously ran and owned. For a whole bunch of reasons, we've decided that bigger is better. And, you know, I, I think that the kind of the economic wonky side of me wants to kind of put out there a different way to really provide capital in that middle market that used to exist, doesn't anymore. And I can see in my community, even though my community is doing quite well, I see opportunities all the time of companies that could be the market leader. They could be the biggest thing in their industry if they had been able to access some capital at the right time and you know they couldn't and so they aren't and and somebody else filled that gap and you know to me that's a shame and that's not what we we shouldn't be okay with that you know so but on the day-to-day like what's fun about this is all the crazy great opportunities and ideas and inventions sometimes and product ideas and service ideas. That people come to talk to us about. I mean, it's amazing to see the ingenuity and the innovation that's going on, you know, in what a lot of people on the coast would think of as flyover country. You know, I think we've we've got kind of got some pretty interesting things coming to light from people that that are approaching their businesses as an important part of their life, but maybe not the only part of their life, which I think is a great ethos maybe that our region, our state can maybe share externally and and show people that you can have your cake and eat it too. Mm. You can have a life and a great innovative company at the same time. So so yeah, I I think that's where I get a lot of energy, right? Is dealing with entrepreneurs and just seeing all the great things that they're doing.
1: Awesome. I want to talk about these entrepreneurs for a minute. So The question that comes to mind for me, and maybe this is totally wrong, is do you find that these entrepreneurs are seeking out alternative paths or have you been in the situation where you're pursuing a new business or entrepreneur idea, but they kind of get in their own way of wanting to get on the VC bandwagon or like, how does that all work?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think... More often than not, people do not understand the capital sources that are available to them well enough. And so, so they basically buy into the, what do I want to call it, almost like the pop culture of venture capital. Like like the, the thing I always kind of throw out there as maybe a horrible example of 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 what our modern capitalism has come to is kind of Shark Tank, right? Like Shark Tank has become this thing that – if you are starting a business, you think that's what you aspire to is, (laughs) is to get in front of that jury and have them dress you down. And, you know, the reality is that, that most people that are starting a business think that, yeah, they're going to need some capital to grow this. I've seen how they talk about it on Shark Tank. So I guess I better be able to talk about it like that and how I'm taking this thing to the moon as fast as possible. And I think it just kind of sets up an unnatural expectation for most entrepreneurs. So for sure, you know, one of the first things I ask people when we're first sitting down and then they're saying, well, I've got got to raise 500000 or I got to raise $2 million or whatever that is. One of the first things I ask them is, what do you want your life to be like five years from now? Because what people get blinded by is like, I need the money, therefore, I must bend myself into a pretzel in order to, to achieve what these investors are looking for. Instead of standing back at it and basically saying, yeah, what do I want this to look like? Do I want you know this to go as fast as possible with this relatively high degree of stress? Because I know that at the end of the rainbow, I'm going to be able to, or I don't know, but I think I'm going to be able to sell this company for a big pile of money in about three years or five years, and then I can retire. And if you want to do that, fantastic, do it. Like, that's exciting. I've been involved with tons of companies that have done that, right? And it is a fun and exciting journey. On the other hand, most people, when they are asked that question, they start to realize, like, well, no, not really. Like, I really like the founders that I started this company with, I really like my clients. I really like the product that we're building and I think we're really solving a problem in the marketplace and I don't want to be rushed to cut corners or, you know, take away customer service and for the sake of profitability, if, if that's the right thing to do, you know, to me, like the most important thing might be my clients and the success of, of them. And I just assume in the long run, that'll be okay for me as an entrepreneur. And so I think, you know, to me, like that's the two ends of the spectrum a a little bit to be thinking about. And I would say you're right, that most folks that we sit down with only see the rapid growth venture capital kind of method as what they're in the market searching for. And uh, yeah, it's it's always kind of a funny conversation when one of our taglines is like no hockey stick required, right? Like we get to the end of their pitch deck and there's almost always invariably this crazy revenue chart that's going to go from zero to 50 million all of a sudden in year three or whenever it is. And, you know, people really like it when we say we don't like to see that because we don't think that's how most businesses are going to grow. And we don't necessarily think it's a sustainable thing for you as the founder of that company to be able to go live that life to achieve that. Are you sure that's what you want? Mm. And, you know, sometimes the answer is yes. And heck yes, let's go do it. Right. But, but in other cases, I I think that that's an eye-opening question for people.
1: Sure. You must also meet with companies that want to kind of pick this other path, but just aren't the right kind of company to do it. Like, you know, I think about a lot of technology companies and when you're innovating in that space, like in a a lot of ways, you have to sign up for the venture funded path because it will cost $2 million to get an MVP and then another 15 to take your MVP to actually better features. So do you also have to talk to entrepreneurs and be like, I'm sorry, but you signed up for a different path?
0: Yeah, I'd say sometimes, but I you know, I think the reality is that a lot of the time, those first steps, the MVP to get to some clients, to show some revenue, $2 million is a lot of money these days to develop a, an MVP in a software, let's call it a software business, where, you know, Folks that are thinking about it differently are still trying to build a product like you're describing, but they see a way of maybe doing that with two to five hundred thousand dollars or something like that, and seeing it as a way to level up their company, their understanding of their marketplace, of their clients, of what the product really needs to be when it goes to get the 2 million dollars investment but you know there's pretty good examples in my past and in our state's past for that matter of folks that never took outside financing and have grown their companies into something really really substantial and you know i think that those are not the results that get talked about a lot in the press or in, you know, our kind of local rumor mills, right? Like the the ones that get talked about are only the ones that exited to so-and-so for this much money and blah, blah, blah. Whereas these, these other companies that have been highly successful tend to be quieter about it. They're not, they're not crowing about how they raised $3 million. They would rather crow about how they didn't raise anything, but you know what? They just don't crow at all anyway, because they're just working behind the scenes to build a great company. So, so you're, you're right. There are times when you're not going to make it without a venture capital type of an investment. But I think the, the problem is, is that a lot of people come at it with a foregone conclusion that it is the only way. And I think if you looked around our state and talked to some really successful companies and asked them, how did they do it without outside capital? They'd tell you they did it by helping customers. They solved Mm. problems for customers and earned revenue that let them grow the next phase and the next phase. And, you know, that's kind of an old fashioned way of looking at it. Right. I I guess that's one of the questions we're putting on the table is like, why is organic growth a bad idea? (laughs) You know, why, why does it have to be this hockey stick thing as the only way to really kind of show that what you're doing is worthwhile. And, and I, you know, to me, like I, I've spent way more of my time working with people of the first, first variety that are, you know, trying to figure out how to grow it organically because it's their company, darn it. And I want to run it like I want to run it.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because yeah, I've been a small business owner in Montana for 12 years now. And I've just seen so many changes that I love what you're saying, but I have to be honest. I sit here and I think, I used to think that was possible. And like, even looking at, you know, we have the Taco Bells in Western Montana, all of the other franchisees are now private equity firms. Like we're now considered a tiny franchisee. If we want to grow, it's like even in our model, it's like private equity is the path or scale is always the path. If you bring something to market that a VC-funded company can crush you overnight because they have more money that, I don't know, I, I just say, like, I totally believe in it. And yeah. I'm also like, I hope this works. I want this to right. be a thing. <laughs>
0: Well, so I think that's some of this, and that's a little bit getting into kind of why our investors are with us, right is I would say private equity is trying to eat the world and and you know it is doing what I've been talking about with consolidation upon consolidation. They're the prime players that cause this consolidation to happen. They find a functioning great profitable business, they buy it, they try to join it together with three more that are just like it, and then if they're lucky they sell it to a bigger private equity fund or they take it public or whatever they do. And that's how we've gotten where we've got, you know, as a, a modern capital market that does not serve smaller companies who are kind of doing normal stuff. And so, you know, to me, part of this is we have to show that there's another way of doing this. We are already showing it and showing returns that are really equity. Like I didn't really answer that. Your question about that earlier, you know, our, our revenue equity deals are, you know, when we set out to, to start down the path with those clients, it's it's between a 15 and 30% IRR is what we're modeling, which is what venture capital is trying to achieve on a fund level. That's what they've been trying to do forever. That's what private equity is trying to do forever. And, you know, what we're saying is we're just not going to strike out with ours. They're going to make investments and even private equity screws them up sometimes, right? Like they they <laughs> they come in, they buy something for more than they should have paid for it because they're in competition with all these other private equity funds. Then they proceed to make changes in the underlying business. Usually it looks like decreased customer service, not always, but that's what I was talking about about cutting corners. You know, they start to cut corners as a way to save money and pretty soon like the core of that business, what it stood for, which might have been great customer service, high quality product, whatever that is, is no longer there. And so now, guess what? We got another opportunity for a new startup to come in with a higher quality product or a higher quality customer service thing, rather than saying, why don't we just help these people stay where they are, these companies stay where they are, figure out how it's okay for the founders in those companies to move on, but leave a great management team behind them. So I, I totally hear you Steph and and believe me I see it every day. I I have some of my clients that are, you know, getting called constantly by private equity wishing to buy them. And it's a really interesting difficult problem that I'd say mm-hmm. that we've we've sort of painted ourselves into the corner of as a society that right. you know, there are not a lot of other choices at a certain point. And that seems like a fundamental problem to us.
1: Yeah. It's so tough because the only, nobody's questioning the crazy prices private equity is paying openly. But I think every founder I've met that's sold to private equity is like, I don't know why they were willing to pay that price.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Which makes it hard to say no to.
0: But there is a reason <laughs> that, that they are willing to pay it. And it's because... Generally, because they're playing with other people's money and the people that are making the investment decisions don't really have much skin in the game. Typically, typically what they are doing is serving as a fund manager that gets paid on profit created by the fund. So their, their incentive is to get the money deployed as fast as possible because they're going to earn fees for that get the money deployed as fast as possible, because that's the only way that they might possibly create some upside from their investment. And, you know, guess what? Human nature takes over from there that, you know, their sure. their incentive is to deploy capital. And so if they're going to knock on a door of a company that really doesn't want to sell itself, what do they have to do to get that company to consider it? They have to make an offer that the founder can't refuse.
1: Sure. Yep
0: you know so to me it's fundamentally unsustainable it's really it's really only sustainable because of what our stock market is doing where it's trading at at literally an all-time high when it when you compare it to the earnings of the companies that are in the stock market i think that's the other yep. f- the other part that people don't understand about venture capital and private equity is it's entirely based on mergers and acquisitions the money that you will earn back from those investments only comes to you if the company gets bought. And so we've charted out, it's actually one of the things that we talked to, you know, interested investors about is, did you know that if you charted the number of mergers and acquisitions deals done in a given month, relative to the relative health of the S and P 500, they track each other really, really closely. So sure. so really, a venture capital investment that's supposed to be alternative to and getting you diversification, it really isn't. It's just another investment in the S&P 500 in, in different clothing.
1: Yeah, and different format. Sure. Well, Jeff, I love that you've been proving out this model these last few years. And I mean, I know founders in your portfolio that are just thrilled by your model. And I, I love hearing their stories and their exit stories. What's next for you all?
0: Yeah, so I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but we are, what we're really working on hard right now is really trying to expand that geographic footprint for ourselves. And like I shared earlier, we're really trying to match investors with investments in a geographic sense, you know, in, in some ways we think about ourselves as almost like a replacement for community banking, like it was decades ago, different return profile, we hope for sure. And we're definitely looking for equity investments, but the idea of rooting money and wealth with into place by working with companies that are doing great things in that same place, feeding that mechanism back through, through our local economy and then at the same time help these founders create really valuable companies and help them maintain ownership of their own companies there's another wealth creation wheel that's spinning there you know but the reality is, is what we're working on every day right now is trying to find more investors that can see how this is a diversification play for themselves it'd be highly unlikely that they have an asset like this in their portfolio right now but that also has great return possibilities that's where we're spending our time. Like I mentioned, we're, we're finishing one last investment under our kind of previous model of working directly with investors and companies to form deals. So we're still working under our old model a little bit. But the goal here is to try to get to, you know, really a modest sized fund. You know, we'd like to be in the 20 to 25 million dollar range and really kind of do business, to say it verbally, I think from kind of Billings, Montana, to Boise, Idaho, to Spokane, Washington, and kind of all of the communities in and around that triangle is where we're looking to be doing business. So that's really what we're working hard on daily, is meeting more people that kind of see the opportunity and, and can see see the wisdom of this kind of investing. And you know, the, the funny part about it is, is the people we're speaking to are a lot of the time, either previous business owners or current business owners. And the thing almost all of them say is like, man, where were you guys five years ago or 10 years ago when I was starting my company? Because this is exactly what I needed. You know, so I I think from our perspective, it makes us feel like we're onto something, right? If you've got an experienced business person who's now looking to be an investor and they can see the connection, you know, kind of tells us that we're satisfying a need in the market.
1: That's great. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to watch your journey ahead. If you don't mind, can I transition us into my rapid fire questions?
0: Oh, sure. I hope I okay. I hope I can keep up.
1: Yes. You have to speak really rapidly or I don't <laughs> post it. What are you looking forward to in the next 30 days, personally or professionally?
0: In the next 30 days, I am looking forward to Memorial Day weekend and going with my family on a trip up to Flathead Lake.
1: Oh, that sounds so nice. Oh, I'm so ready for summer. I love the lake. I'm ready for it. If your company didn't exist, if you could not do home for a whole week and you couldn't work, you had to do something new, what would you do at that time?
0: Had to do something new professionally or...
1: Yeah, I'm going to say yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. this time. Sure. I accidentally said that, but it sounds good.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I would probably start another business. You know, there are plenty of ideas in my idea file. And if I could kind of wave the magic wand of saying, I'm just going to start something else, that's probably what I would do. I don't know exactly what it would be. I'd have to search through the idea file and figure out the right one.
1: <laughs> that's the, the worst part of the whole experience, I think. Anything binge worthy in your life right now? Shows you're watching, podcasts, books, anything like that?
0: Man, who has time for that? <laughs> you know, no, nothing exactly comes to mind. I mean, I've definitely been watching a few Netflix shows that, you know, everybody else watched probably five years ago. So I've been watching Arrested Development, which makes me laugh. But that that's, a, that's an old one at this point. It's funny to see how old the, how young the actors are in that one.
1: Oh, that's funny. I know I'm a big Netflixer and I've been really into documentaries lately, oh. and I think it's making me so serious everywhere I go. It's like I have too many documentaries. Yeah,
0: I watched one about the oceans not long ago, and it it kind of made it kind of made me sad. So yeah, oh. I've, I've been steering away from the the documentaries lately.
1: Yes. I watched that one. And just last night I had to order a salad and be like, I know it's a shrimp salad, but I need it with chicken. Because <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, right now I'm sure chicken's better. And then I'm going to watch a documentary about chickens and like be horrified. And <laughs> For
0: sure. Yep.
1: <laughs> yep. Okay. Someone you are really looking up to in life right now.
0: Someone I'm looking up to, wow. I mean, I don't know that there's a single person per se. I mean, I, you know, I I think it does tie back to like, what do I think about every day and what do I work on every day? And, you know, I really, really enjoy the entrepreneurs that I get to interact with and and I look up to them. I mean, they're creating wealth for people. They're creating jobs for people. And, you know, so to me, like, if we don't have those people and if we're not supporting those people in our culture look out below because we're going to have harder problems to solve down the line so you know i guess it's kind of a it's a kind of a non answer given what we've been talking about but but to me that's that's it like all of the entrepreneurs i i wish that i had a million hours in my days right so that so that i could always be interacting with and potentially offering some advice that they find helpful
1: sure that's a good answer. I'll take it. If you didn't have one, I was going to just throw myself in as someone you were looking <laughs> up to. What is a current challenge you're facing professionally or personally?
0: I would say this COVID repercussions is, is probably the biggest one. And, and I, I shouldn't complain at all. I mean, in, in one way, COVID has made me incredibly busy And that's made it difficult to really sort of focus on and prioritize the things that I really want to get accomplished. But I think the other half of that is, you know, the challenge of trying to raise a fund like we're trying to do when until recently people didn't really want to meet with us in person. And, you know, being able to kind of have this kind of a conversation we're having right now with someone face to face is a lot different than doing it through Zoom. And, you know, so I'm really looking forward to these coming months when things get a little bit back to normal and we can actually meet with people to think that that will remove some of the challenges that we've seen.
1: Okay. Yes. I can't, I think we all can't. Yeah. I
0: I assume all of us can agree to that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Final question. What is your source of motivation to keep going on days when what you're doing seems impossible?
0: Well, I'd say that probably spins right back to really personal and family life. I've got a couple young kids. They're not as young as they used to be, but, you know, still at home and, and, you know, figuring out how to, how to be in a position to help them do everything that they are going to want to do in life is a big thing that I, you know, I, I feel responsible for and, and want to do. And so, you know, I'd, I'd say it's my kids, my wife, just, you know, my personal side keeps me going.
1: Awesome. Okay, Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. I- love hearing your story and what you're doing. Can you tell our audience where they can find you and Homestake online?
0: Oh, for sure. And I'll say thank you too, Steph. This is a, it's a really cool forum that you're creating and really glad to be part of it. Best way to reach us is is through our website. It's homestakeventurepartners.com. You could also search any of us up on LinkedIn and find us pretty easily probably. And you know, I'd, I'd say the best thing to do if you are interested in this or want to learn more just reach out. It's a lot easier to have a conversation or have an email back and forth than it is to, you know, try to figure it all out just by reading our profiles or reading our website or whatever that is. You know, I think our thing is it does really take a village and and the more, more community members that we can have part of what we're attempting to do or what we're actually doing, I guess, the better it's going to be.
1: Amazing. Good luck. And we will follow your story and see you again soon. Thanks, Steph. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.